You are back with the conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. This is Catherine Cruz. This morning, we put the spotlight on an anchor in a community known to attract Hawaii's newest immigrants. Palama Settlement is a social service nonprofit that marks its 125th anniversary in 2021. Motorists can glimpse the white structure built in the Gothic Revival style just under the freeway there in Kalihi. It sits on a six-acre parcel in one of our poor neighborhoods. In these pandemic times, with its programs serving our kapuna and keiki restricted, it has focused its efforts on feeding the community. HPR's News Director Bill Dorman joins me in the studio. Good morning, Bill. Good morning, Catherine. And we were also joined uh, via phone by Paula Rath, the granddaughter of the founder of Paloma Settlement, James Arthur Rath, and the daughter of Bobby Rath, whose oral history will be heard today. Paula is a retired journalist who worked at the Honolulu Advertiser. She's currently an emeritus board member of Paloma Settlement. Good morning, Paula. Good morning, Catherine. Boy, talk about rich history uh, of that area. I mean, that's really an understatement. Well, we, we pretty much do tell the story of, of the um, Paloma area for the last 125 years. And we're just as relevant today as, as we were then you know and it really is a story that begins with with your father robert rath senior bobby born in 1915 in honolulu where his father james arthur rath was the first director of palama settlement uh, his mother rania helsher rath who i learned lived to be the uh, to the age of 102 taught sunday school and english to immigrants at palama Bobby Rath lived at the settlement until he was 15, later graduated from Punahou and UH, also served as president of the Board of Trustees of Palama Settlement, and was an executive at the Union Oil Company. But when this interview you're about to hear was done in the late 1990s, his focus was on growing up at the settlement, and that included the ethnic mix that evolved there. Initially, there were a lot of Hawaiian, Potawaiian, Chinese, a lot of our athletic teams were Chinese. A little later, the Japanese started coming in off the plantations. By the time I was 10, 11, 12, early teens, I'd say at least 40% of them were Japanese and working in town. And naturally, they gravitated to the cheap rent area, waiting to work their way out of it. I sure don't ever remember asking my mother, what'll I do? I have nothing to do. Because all I had to do was walk out of the house, and there were all kinds of kids my age. We had a game room with ping pong, billiards, other activities, a swimming pool, at certain hours we could use it, the gymnasium, all of this supervised. And the playground with swings, slides. They, of course, recognized I was so-called boss's son. But, you know, I was in the sun so much I was dark and they couldn't tell my pigeon English from theirs. Uh, I'd get into fights like anybody else and get into groups as part of the Nishikiya gang, for instance. And uh, I was just one of the, one of the kids. Uh, and when we went to play, say, at Ala Park, teams and so on, off Fern Park in Kalihi, none of them knew I was a howling. I think they thought I was probably Portuguese Hawaiian. When you get into competitive things, that, none of that matters anymore. My father would bring in directors, athletic directors and all, from Springfield, which was almost like a coaching college. And they would organize groups and get into city leagues and all. It gave them a lot of pride to be able to compete at that level. And then every other youngster was working to get on that senior team. One of the other things that grew out of this settlement house count concept was how important it was to try to get parents or kids out of their particular environment sometime during the year. So early on, say 1911 or so, uh, they started taking families out to Kaipapau or different places and putting up tents and in effect camping for a week with the kids and the parents and all just to get remove them from that area and uh, teach them more about hygiene and so on. You have to remember that one of the objectives of a settlement house and certainly Palama Settlement was to teach them, you might say, social skills, amenities, getting along and working with people with the idea 
you work your way out of what is the slum area, which we were, face it. And the whole idea is to teach them to graduate out of the slums. And as a result, very few, maybe one family that I grew up with is still in that area. They worked their way out of it. You know, working their way out of it, certainly that's a theme for a lot of folks who shared that experience at Palama Settlement. And we have the uh, uh, Center for Oral History at the University of Hawaii to thank, uh, you know, for that interview. But Paula, what was that like listening to your dad? Um, <laughs> I haven't heard his voice since uh, 2006, so it's wonderful. It, it's really, really wonderful, and um, I'm doing doing everything I can to follow in his footsteps, and um, yeah, <laughs> you know, when he died, the advertiser did a um, an obituary about him that was really, really a very nice obit. The headline was Palama Boy. <laughs> oh. <laughs> it mentioned Union Oil, too, but <laughs> the headline was Palama Boy. Now, you know, when, you we, know, he was, when we chatted sorry. yesterday, uh, uh, I, I know you had mentioned that uh, he had gone to school at Punahou, and he had had one foot in Punahou and one foot in Palama, and I was struck by that. Yes, he always felt that way. <laughs> Share your thoughts about, about I guess, the, the pride that you feel, you know, knowing that your father and your grandfather had played this part, this, you know, of, of Hawaii's history. Well, and um, in addition to that, I must mention that my mother spent many years creating an archive, and the Palama archives are really quite amazing. The photographs go back to the Chinatown fire, which was 1900 and was kind of the impetus for a settlement to be needed in uh, that neighborhood. And they, uh, they, they really chronicle everything that's happened at Palama in the last 125 years. Um, they're remarkable. We are in the process of looking for funds to help us hire an archivist and also to digitize because um, <laughs> the idea of a fire is really frightening when you look at what we have in those archives. But the fascinating thing to me is that the, the mission of Palama Settlement has never changed. The people have changed, and there have been waves of immigrants. We're usually the first stop for immigrants. There have been waves of immigrants coming through who are all you know, very different, but the mission has stayed the same, and that is to go out into the neighborhood and find out what people need and then do our very best to provide it. So in the early days, health care was the first need. Well, today, feeding people in our neighborhood is, is, is a first priority. So it, it, it continues, and our awareness of what is needed um, continues. You know, that idea of meeting people where they are and meeting the needs that exist at the time, there are just so many of these stories that reflect that. And another voice that we have uh, here, Moses Smokey K. Aloha, someone certainly who, again, as with others, worked his way to better circumstances. He was born in Honolulu in 1928 and spent much of his youth at Palama Settlement. After graduating from Farrington High, later he went to UH, the University of Miami, and Columbia University before he came back to Honolulu for a career as an auto sales executive at Servco. And he talked in this interview about how when he was growing up, the settlement was really for him a second home. Ever since I could remember, you know, I don't know whether we spent more time at Palama or more time at home. Uh, I think we spent more hours at Palama. You know, you just went home to eat and went home to sleep. You know, the rest of your waking hours was at Palama. Most of us took shower, took a bath at Palama. You didn't take a shower at home because, you know, you go in a tub, you go in a tarai, you know? Get the pot, pour water over your head, rub the soap, then get out of that, pour some more water, and then get the outside of the house, get the hose. Whereas if we went to Palama, you get a hot and cold shower. See? 
So most of the people went to Palamo to take a bath. Did they have any kind of meal program? No more. No more. Didn't have. No. You just get together, you're going to rob a store, you're going to steal something from the store, or you're going to do what we call eat and run. It's not the kind where, you know, we're going to stick them up. See the old days, almost every store, they get the, the bin right alongside the sidewalk. This one get onion, this one get what we call Irish potato, you know, that kind. So you walk by, you take one, and we make fire, we throw them on the fire. You guys ever got caught? Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. We get what caught. happened? Good for us, we get caught. You know, so they, uh, they suspend us from a settlement. Uh, the police come down, they investigate, they give us a break, you know. But uh, you get good scolded. I rather get licked. I rather go, I mean, my parents get me licked than me getting suspended because I get nowhere to go. So that means you couldn't even come onto the grounds? You cannot. You cannot go in the gym. Uh, you go sit by the sidewalk and watch everybody going in and out, and you say, Nelson, can I play? Stay there. Or you hanging around outside the swimming pool, I like swim, stay there. You, know, you cannot, you, oh, I tell you, boy, that bugger hurt. I mean, it hurt. Mm. And you, uh, you cannot attend the club meetings. In the evening, you have club meetings, huh? And then you have a storytelling, the share and tell. Those kind of, every night something's going on in Palama. And you cannot attend. Ha! Huh. <laughs> Boy, you straighten up fast. So who enforced that? Any one of the consulates. When uh, Mr. and Mrs. Rat were still active, they used to live on the settlement grounds, you know. Bobby Rat's parents, they had so many things going. That, that Rat, Mr. and Mrs. Rat, they're so funny too. Nice people. She used to bake cookies huh, on certain days. You know, for the staff. But she made mistake that way. You know, she, she don't know about the wind and the birds and the bees. I think she used to put them outside by the window of their place to cool off. <laughs> that smell traveled all the way down to the swimming pool of gymnasium. That <laughs> oh god! Oh god! <laughs> <laughs> All gone with that that youthful enthusiasm for lingering decades later. You know, some of that enthusiasm also lingered for Don Snyder, especially when it came to sports. He was born in Honolulu during the war in 1943. He was raised by a single mom who worked at the Pineapple Cannery and then taught swimming at the Waikiki Natatorium. Financially, this family was stretched and struggling, and at the time, living at the Mayor Wright Public Housing Project. What was it like growing up in Mirai? You know, it was a challenge. We were on welfare and everything at the time. And growing up there, I, I met a lot of different people, you know, with people who were, um, you know, gangsters in that area, uh, some prostitution going on. We had a lot of things like that going on, you know, shooting. But um, what really helped us was uh, athletics. And, you know, I had a lot of my friends there, you know, and they're in athletics. So, you know, Palama Settlement is, was our saving grace. So we, we had a place of refuge. We would go there and, you know, to get away from, you know, the other elements. And it was able to uh, participate in swimming, you know, and, and met some nice people, you know, like Mamizuka. Did. Mamizuka checked check on your grades or anything like that? Yes, he did. He kept on saying, Don, you know, you have the ability to go to school, you know. And I said, well, I, you know, I always thought I wasn't smart enough, you know. You know, you look at, you look around in at the housing areas and, you know, what are these people doing? You know, they're not doing, you know, much. They, they, they're all low, you know, uh, menial jobs, you know. And so I didn't think I was, I, th I thought I was, that's what was meant to me, for me. You know, I mean, I didn't know, I didn't know the world outside. You know, I saw the rich, you know, the punho, but, you know. Hey, they were born in that, you know, and that's why I looked at it, you know, and I could, I never thought I could, you know, amount too much. And I thought I was going to be, you know, a cannery worker. That's what I thought I was going to be. That, that was my, my, my goal, or not my goal, but my, my destiny. And I found out that, you know, they, they kept on telling me, you can be what you want to be. 
you know, if you work hard enough, you know, you can. I believe that they've, they've really helped me in, in a lot of values with a lot of people saying the same thing. They all had this, basically the same values. They, they always, you know, try to kept on, kept harping on me about these values and, you know, that I can do it, that um, I'm smart enough, that uh, I'm good enough, you know, and I have the ability. And they kept on doing that, and no matter what I did over there. And I, and I think that the same thing with the rest of the people we had, you know. You know, they, they, they gave us the competition, they gave us the, 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 the knowledge, they gave us the opportunity to, to, um, to do the best that we can. And, you know, if, if we didn't do it, it's nobody's fault but ours, you know. But they didn't let us down. You know, if we fell down, they didn't step on us and say, you know, you're not good. They kept on picking us up and saying, you know, you can do it, you can do it, you know. And, uh, and, and I think, you know, those kind of values, I think, you know, you know, because everybody makes mistakes and we all make mistakes and sometimes we, you know, we pay dearly for it and other times it's a minor mistakes, but we still learn from it, you know? And I was like nobody else, and it's like anybody else, I made mistakes and I, you know, and I paid for it and I learned from it and, and hopefully I'm a better person for it. Wow. Athletics and education remained key parts of Don Snyder's life. He went on to graduate from McKinley High and joined the Navy, then graduated from the University of San Francisco, and he wound up playing professional basketball in Europe before coming back to Hawaii in 1970 as a teacher and a coach. He eventually became athletic director at Lahaina Luna School on Maui. And, you know, if you're just joining us, uh, we're talking about Palama Settlement, and we are joined uh, today by Paula Rath, whose grandfather founded Palama Settlement. Uh, Paula's a retired journalist and emeritus board member of Palama. Uh, you know, just listening to those stories, Paula, you know, I mean, we, we have to mention, you know, some of the other folks that, that uh, uh, whose lives were touched by Palama Settlement, you know, right? G Governor Ben Cayetano, Governor Ryoshi. Uh, Shaw Thompson, you know, all uh, leaders in our community, just touched by, you know, what your family uh, helped to start there. And Amy Tolenbang once told me that she learned everything from um, ballroom dancing to how to wait in line and be, be a little bit patient. <laughs> well, Paloma Settlement sounds like it really was a carrot that was out there. I mean, you provided discipline, you provided you know, support for those children uh, and showers, wonderful showers who didn't have, you know, that luxury at home? Well, you know, our facilities are pretty remarkable to have had a gym, a pool, locker rooms, a football field, basketball, volleyball, um, you know, a playroom. We have all of those things still, and we had them when when all of these uh, people that you're, these voices that you're hearing, were going to Palama. And in fact, we had nine acres and then came Vineyard and took away the preschool and the tennis courts. But that's okay. We're, you know, we're, we've got this huge, wonderful campus where kids can come and adults can come. Our senior program, um, that's something that, you know, wasn't as needed in the days of my grandparents or even my father. But as our senior program is thriving. We have almost 300 uh, seniors who come and do everything from line dancing to sewing to um, Zumba, chair Zumba. And um, they play Mahjong. They do Tai Chi. It's um a wonderful program there are watercolor classes so that is you know a, a, just another part of how we have evolved and pivoted i believe is the term nowadays and um proved our resilience over these many many decades you know and i think you know you're here for the community in this pandemic uh paloma settlement was around you know during the spanish flu time as well Yes, in fact, um, we had a, a Paola camp um, at that time, and we immediately, in 1918, during the pandemic, we uh, pivoted and turned it into a hospital for uh, 18 patients. Quite a history. Yeah. 
You know, we, we've been talking a lot this morning about the, the impact of Kalama Settlement on the people who grew up using the, the services really there and, and that, that life. But so much of the story also is about the folks who worked there, like Erlene Pico. She was born in Encino, California in 1931. She studied at UCLA, got her undergraduate and master's degrees there, and was working towards a doctorate in educational psychology. She came to Hawaii as a single mom with two children and started working at Palama Settlement in 1963. And when she caught up with interviewers, or interviewers caught up with her in the early 1990s, she started her interview talking about what it was like working as a kind of an outsider, at least when she started. You're Howie, and you were asked <laughs> to work at Palama Settlement and live at Palama Settlement. Now, how was it for you, because of your being Howley and the client population being non-Howley? I learned real quickly, the people really taught me that, that um, they weren't going to like me. Well, you know, they, they weren't going to come up and want to be friends with me. They might come up if they thought I had something they wanted to come up, yeah? But they weren't going to want me to be their friend. They weren't going to trust me because I'm sure they thought I didn't understand anything about their life. And so I can't, I have to accept them where they were. But with me, I had the right, the obligation, and the chance to learn about them. So if I could learn where they were, then we could, we could communicate. And I learned later through the years, you have to work harder if you have a white skin. I was very sensitive mm -hmm. to the neighborhood, to their feelings. Not that they were right, but that was their feelings. It didn't matter. Working the same way, hard as you can, the guy with the browner skin tones will be successful within six months. The guy with the white skin, working as hard as he can, just a skill, if he sticks to the job, and an awful lot of them didn't, okay, uh, it would take him two years at least for anybody to trust him. How did they get the feeling that way? Because they had years of experience that validated those thoughts, okay? The thing was, had I gone in and ex expected to be liked, to be trusted, to be wanted, I would have quit because it would have broken my heart. But I recognized, you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm foreign material. This is this is weird as you can get. Uh, the little kids, of course, were the easiest ones. The little kids, the smaller, the hardest were the adults, but the adolescents were the hardest to deal with because they were overt and rebellious and angry. I was never afraid. I never locked my door. Uh, I think I was the only howley howley mm -hmm. in mm -hmm. a 16 block area, you know. Mm -hmm. And everybody knew me. Mm -hmm. and, every, and they didn't know my name. They knew what I was. I was this howley. They called me the white haired lady that lived down there, right? Okay. I never walked and went around in places where I had no business to be. I felt more threatened in Hawaii Kai than I ever felt threatened in Palama. More threatened in Hawaii Kai. You know, not just a matter of it feeling comfortable with physical safety at the settlement, but also the psychological safety, really. And that's another theme that resonates across experiences and, and for years among a number of the people that uh, that we hear from today. Yeah, and, and Paula, uh, I know Erlene Pico really made her mark there at Paloma. She did. Uh, she created a program called Pakolea in 1970, and it means to grow strong. Um, and it's a very innovative program that is just as relevant today as it was then. And um, it's an athletic program, football and basketball mainly, and you have to earn the ability to play. So you, you um, through behavior modification and studies, uh, you go into a classroom, you get help with your homework, you find a mentor who can help you with behavior modification if, if that's something that, 
that you need, <laughs> most kids do, and then you earn your time on the field or on the court. And it's been a very successful program. It's really, it, well, it was very vibrant um, last year, and we're hoping that we'll be able to have it again before too long. Uh, we also reintroduced feeding table to that program. It was, it was gone for quite a while because we weren't really hearing that our kids were hungry. And then we, <laughs> P.E. Mins, who is, um, oversees that program, and Maya Ostrowski, um, whose names are well-known in athletics locally, are working at Palama now, and they went door-to-door and uh, did some informal research and discovered that a lot of the kids that we had playing very active football and basketball were going home at night and getting dinner maybe maybe two nights a week, if that. So we reinstated feeding table. And we've come kind of full circle now that uh, you're feeding uh, the community as well. We have. And um, actually, that's our main focus right now. During COVID-19, we, um, we're feeding 10 times more recipients than we did in January. So it's, it's become really, really even more important than it was. And... Um, we're doing virtual classes now for coding, and we can hardly wait to get back to robotics. <laughs> We're doing breakdancing. So it's really amazing how resilient Palama is and how we come back, you know, to, to what is needed now. And, and, yeah, you know, we were teaching, we were teaching um, primarily girls to do home economics back in the 20s and 30s. And now we're teaching kids to do coding and robotics because that's where the jobs are. That is awesome. <laughs> that, that really is. And that, that ability, you used the word several times in terms of pivoting um, and pivoting throughout the history of the settlement. And that, that's, as you described, that is something that you see not only in the, the services that you list, the, the types of courses that you, you mentioned, but also, again, in terms of the experiences of the folks who talk to the Center for Oral Histories and whose stories we're able to, to share today. And one more example of this, a more recent story from uh, Futina uh, Tua, born in American Samoa in 1956. He moved with his family to Honolulu at the age of two and, similar to, to some other immigrant stories, moved into the Mayor Wright homes with his parents and seven siblings. And when he spoke with interviewers in the early 90s, he described growing up in tough conditions, including for him some scrapes with authority. When I was uh, sixth grade, I had a little, I had began to get in trouble. Probably my delinquency years began. And then went to Dole Intermediate, and really struggled with life. And part of it was a peer pressure. The changes began, and uh, involvement with the family court, and, and the delinquency, and hanging around with the wrong kids was, was pretty common. I struggled and never really went to school. I ended up uh, flunking out. It was my cousin that said, you know, took me under his wing and said, better keep an eye on you now so you come with me go football practice. So Kerry's uniform would walk from Campbell Housing all the way to Kalakaua, where Kalakaua School is now. And I would watch him practice, I'd watch him practice, and that was their water boy and all that, and watch him practice. And then took an interest in it, right? We played Paloma. I saw John Sharp there, you know, I said, oh, I want to play for that guy because he had a real good team. And that, that's how I became involved with Paloma Settlement. It was, it was at my eighth grade year. The sporting event gave you an interest, and then the crowd that you hung out with was different. You no longer became involved with that other crowd. And you, know, you hung out with the, the kids that were pretty good kids. Or, you know, they had some trouble. They were pretty decent kids. I loved it. I loved the program because at first there was a little fear because school wasn't, you couldn't just play sports, you had to participate in the academics as well. Um, but it was like their program was so structured and they had things there and I 
opportunities there that I've never experienced at home. I'll never forget um, this lady's early chambers. Now it's Pico. She was a very big influence along with John Shaw. I played football for John Shaw twice, two years, going to the mainland, going to the neighbor island, and be becoming champions and that type of thing. And then I left, went on to St. Louis. Did you get the scholarship to go to St. Louis? They call it um, need, financial need, or aid, right? Uh, the coaches came around, you know, we went up there, took the test. Palmer Prep prepared me for, uh, you know, that, that kind of competition, that kind of changes because you're going from a public school to a private school, right? Totally different, totally different. And uh, I mean, I was doing general math going to algebra, right? And it would just blew my mind away. So again, I had to dig uh, deep into my, you know, my struggles and, and uh, my strength and say, do it, do it, and did it. Talk about absorbing lessons. After graduating from St. Louis, you get a bachelor's degree from San Jose State, a master's at the University of Massachusetts. He came back to the islands in the early 1990s and became a probation officer in the U.S. District Court system. You know, that idea of digging deep into strengths and attitude, Palama Settlement clearly instilled in many, many people over the years. I should mention this project, by the way, is a partnership with Hawaii Public Radio, the Center for Oral History at the University of Hawaii, as well as the Hawaii Council for the Humanities. And, you know, Paula, any final thoughts? I mean, wow, Palama Settlement, what a treasure. Well, I'm, needless to say, I'm extremely proud to be connected with Palama, to be the third generation. Um, I believe that there will be a fourth generation of Raths involved. Um, my niece, Heather Rath, uh, who lives in Hilton Head, South Carolina, is our social media consultant. <laughs> so um, I think we're going to continue. And just as soon as we can, we will be back with all of our programs. Um, our alternative school is, is still going. Um, our summer enrichment had just 11 kids so that we could still have it. Um, those coding and robotics will be back and we will be hiring an archivist and getting our digitization done. But uh, we also need funding for all of those projects. And so um, people are, just more than welcome to check palamasettlement.org. Well, we will be uh, certainly there to support you for your 125th. But thank you so much, Paula. You know, Thank you. We have only just scratched the surface of Palama Settlement stories, and we would like to thank Paula Rath for sharing some of those today. And you can continue this conversation with her as the uh, Center for Oral History hosts a Zoom event next week as part of a series of discussions on resilience. Paula will be joined by Blaine Ikaika Dutro on Wednesday, August 25th, from 4 to 5.15 p.m. And we will have links on our website on how to join that. So this is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. Uh, coming up after the break, we'll talk about RIMPAC as this scale-back military games gets underway this week. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Hawaii Community Foundation, addressing COVID-19 by deploying resources to help avoid its spread, protecting those in Hawaii who are considered vulnerable. HawaiiCommunityFoundation.org We interrupt our program to bring you this important message. If you're listening to my voice, it's because you've tuned in HPR to be informed and entertained. That's the power of radio and why we're celebrating National Radio Day today. I'm Dave Lawrence, host of All Things Considered. And if you value radio in your daily life, make a contribution to HPR today online at hawaiipublicradio.org or call 1-877-970-8800 or you can use our HPR mobile app. And happy National Radio Day. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, committed to the community's health with a temporary museum closure and offering digital experiences at honolulumuseum.org. The Rim of the Pacific International Military Exercises are underway now in the waters around Hawaii. The event known as RIMPAC is held every two years. 
and it's involved more than two dozen countries at times. But as with so much in the world, this year is different. HBR's Ryan Finity joins us with more on the story. And Ryan, this really is a different kind of impact. Yeah, that's right, Bill. Um, you know, people who live in Hawaii are, are pretty familiar with this event. It happens every two years. Uh, and this will be the 27th running of RIMPAC, so it's been going on for decades. Um, but as you said, this year is going to be significantly different. It's scaled back quite a bit. Uh, there will only be 10 countries participating this year, including the U.S. That's down from 26 in 2018, which was the last time RIMPAC was held. Um, and, and notably, all of the land-based training, land-based portions of the exercise have been canceled. So this will be entirely at sea. This is a naval exercise. Uh, so in the past, much of it has taken place at sea, uh, kind of beyond the, the horizon, so to say, where you can't necessarily see what's going on from shore. But there was a big presence of personnel um, coming into port, getting time off, you know, maybe going to Waikiki for, uh, for recreation, and then also uh, training taking place on land. There's usually a large amphibious assault that happens at the uh, Marine Corps base in Kaneohe on Oahu, um, and, and activities like that that are more visible, um, both uh, kind of social and diplomatic, and then also uh, operational. Those will not be happening this year. Um, the only uh, the only time ships will be coming into port will be to refuel and resupply. And uh, the agreement that's been worked out with the different navies is that personnel will either stay on the ships or be limited to the pier for those logistics activities. So they won't be coming into the, the community at all. Um, and you know that's a that's a substantial change from how things have been done in the past largely driven by these concerns over COVID-19 and the global pandemic. And that is, of course, the, uh, if not the elephant in the room, I don't know, the whale in the water, whatever it is. Uh, <laughs> but that means changes also in, in terms of even out on the water as well, presumably. Yeah, it's no secret that the, the U.S. Navy in particular has had issues with uh, the spread of virus uh, on its ships and within its crews. There was the uh, USS Theodore Roosevelt aircraft carrier uh, that uh, was international news uh, several months ago and had to go into port in Guam because so many of its sailors had contracted uh, the virus. And then the, uh, the, the, the commanding officer of that ship was uh, relieved of command in a high-profile way. So it is a really significant concern. Um, you know, that is part of the reason why the exercise was shifted to at sea only. Um, the Navy says uh, that, it, that it is taking uh, stepped up precautions to prevent the spread of disease on ships and aboard crew. I talked with uh, U.S. Navy Captain Jay Steingold. He's the director and the planner of this year's RIMPAC, uh, and he explained a little bit of uh, what the Navy, both the U.S. and, and international navies, are doing to prevent the spread of COVID-19. All the partners, including the United States ships that came from out of area in particular, all performed a restriction of movement for two weeks prior to their uh, coming across. Um, that's one way. And then obviously they did medical screenings of their personnel prior to and then throughout. And that that is continuing throughout RIMPAC. Uh, at the same time, on the shore side, we have a very, very limited footprint. In fact, I've got uh, approximately about less than 10% of the normal size of my ex uh, exercise control team is here uh, on the island. And we, in, in particular, myself included, conducted a 14-day quarantine uh, on the base facilities. We utilized military aircraft to come over together. Uh, and then after the completion of that two-week uh, ROM, we call it, we did a test. And we should note, uh, ROM, or restriction of movement, is sort of the U.S. military speak for a quarantine. Uh, leaders of the military uh, in Hawaii say that they are uh, requiring incoming personnel to uh, undergo that quarantine, um, either when they move here permanently or when they return from uh, duty somewhere else. Uh, the governor, David Ige, recently revoked an exemption uh, that had been granted to the military, at least for, uh, for families and dependents. Uh, an exemption to the state quarantine. Um, 
So they are taking taking uh, steps, Bill, but there has understandably been uh, calls to just cancel the exercise entirely, especially since it's been uh, reduced both uh, in scope and in the number of partners who are participating. But uh, Captain Steingold said uh, that one of the reasons the Navy is going forward with with RIMPAC is because uh, this type of exercise and this type of training is really critical to maintaining the network of alliances and partnerships throughout the Indo-Pacific region that the U.S. relies on to uh, to kind of police the the, wa- the international waters in that area, particularly uh, with regard to China, which has been aggressively expanding control in places like the South China Sea. Um, and those different alliances and partners use different equipment. Some of them speak different languages. And, uh, and as Captain Steingold said, uh, you can't surge trust. That was the, the phrase that the Navy is using. So when a crisis erupts, that's already too late to kind of build the, the trust between the different partners and the different allies. And so they use exercises like RIMPAC to, uh, to build that trust when, uh, before a crisis erupts. But there is still uh, a, a pretty strong, uh, strong opposition to holding RIMPAC this year in the local community. This exists every year um, over the environmental impact of the exercise. There have been reports that prostitution and sex trafficking increase around RIMPAC every two years. So there's always been opposition. Now there's stepped up opposition uh, centered around the virus and health concerns. I talked with Kyle Kajihiro, who's with the Cancel RIMPAC Coalition, um, and he told me that uh, their group really hasn't been swayed by either the uh, the health precautions that the Navy has taken or uh, by the decision to uh, reduce RIMPAC to an at-sea-only exercise. We were actually very disappointed with that decision because it only um, deflected from the fact that the exercise was still happening, and it kind of confused the issue. Whenever they do the RIMPAC exercise, there's still many military personnel that arrive and have to uh, do logistics work on land to support the RIMPAC exercise. So even though the ships are only working at sea, there's still a team of people in the islands. And you couple that with the fact that uh, the military as a whole has treated their cases with secrecy, right? They've kept the number of cases from the public. So we can't even know what's really going on. Uh, how well the military has been um, controlling the virus. You know, the safest measure would have been for them to just cancel RIMPAC altogether. And, Bill, we should note that the Department of Defense has been releasing its worldwide case numbers in aggregate. Uh, It has not been releasing more localized data at the state level or from individual installations. However, last week, Admiral Phil Davidson, who's the commander of U.S. Indo-Pacific Command based in Honolulu, did uh, release in a memo uh, a little more insight onto the situation in Hawaii. He said that U.S. military personnel and their families account for 7% of Hawaii's total COVID-19 cases, and that's about equivalent to their share of the overall statewide population. So uh, we do have some insight into that, that their rates of infection seem to be about what you would expect uh, given their representation in the population. All right. Well, thank you, Ryan. And uh, RIMPAC uh, here for a couple of weeks. Again, scaled back from what it usually is, but uh, still here for a couple of weeks. Thank you, Ryan. Sure thing, Bill. Ryan Finnerty. You can find his stories, including this one, online at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Ruby Tuesday Hawaii, following health guidelines, offering dine-in and take-out daily at its restaurants and bars in Kapolei, Mililani, Moanalua, and Kaneohe. RubyTuesdayHawaii.com You might feel like there's not much to celebrate lately, but we've got a good one for you. National Radio Day. 
I'm Ashley Mizuo, HPR's general assignment reporter. Help us celebrate by ensuring the news, entertainment, and music you enjoy stays on the air in the years and months to come. Become a member by donating at hawaiipublicradio.org or calling 1-877-970-8800 or via the HPR mobile app. And happy National Radio Day. Tune in to HPR One on Saturday night for Hawaii Public Radio presents Blue Note Virtually Live, performances from the Blue Note Hawaii stage. This week, it's an encore broadcast of Henry Capono and his band celebrating the timeless classic songs of the beloved duo Cecilio and Capono. And we'll hear an interview with Henry as well. That's this Saturday at 6 p.m. Tune in to HPR One or listen on your smart speaker. A study from the State Department of Economic Development and Tourism back in 2014 projected a $52.5 million economic impact from that year's RIMPAC. 24 nations and 25,000 uniformed personnel participated that year. That figure didn't take into account additional spending by military personnel and their families staying at hotels, dining out, and touring the islands. As you heard in our last segment, this year's scaled-down RIMPAC certainly will not have the same kind of economic impact but some businesses will still benefit. Jason Chung is the Vice President of Military Affairs with the Chamber of Commerce Hawaii. In that role, he advocates for the military in Hawaii and helps link the local community, business, and government. He spoke with the Conversations' Jason Ubai about which local businesses are still engaged with RIMPAC. You know, it really depends on the industry. So if you are in lodging, accommodations, merchandise, restaurants, and eateries, then there's a significant impact as RIMPAC, for safety reasons, in a joint decision between the state and Indo-PACOM, uh, made it an at-sea-only exercise. However, you know, if your industry is in the resupply, purchase of fuel, supplies, and services, and maintenance, then you're, you're, you are still going to have some uh, benefit, because I believe the count now is, I think, 13 or 14 ships that are actually um, at the, at the conclusion of the exercise, we'll come um, into the port, right, to get refueled. Uh, no one's allowed to get off, basically, the ship, but they will get uh, refueled, get supplies, services, and any maintenance that has to occur. So those industries that deal with that specific area will still benefit. There are a number of folks that will have to be, you know, onshore to do liaison and to coordinate logistics, but they are all basically constrained to joint base Pearl Harbor Hickam, right? They cannot leave that base. So they have to go there, they're in quarantine, and they stay there. And that is, once again, right, as a control measure to ensure that, uh, you know, the safety uh, and integrity of the uh, RIMPAC as well as, you know, the state of Hawaii and, and also the local community because when you look at it, right, the military here is part of the community and they make up anywhere between 7 to 10 percent of the population and they're integrated. So it's a safety measure, uh, first and foremost, right, for the for the people of Hawaii. Over the weekend, there was a, a convoy uh, protesting the RIMPAC this year, and on the opposite side of supporting the military here, there are community members who are opposed to military exercise and military presence here in the islands. What would you say to those who are protesting? Well, I mean, I think, um, you know, everyone has to write. I mean, that's that's the beauty of the United States, I mean, the, you know, the understanding their, their concern for the exercise, but, you know, the, the exercise is really focused uh, not so much on, you know, raging war, right, but it's really uh, designed to build a partnership and coalition of like-minded uh, individuals within the region, right, to maintain a free uh, and open Indo-Pacific. And that free and open Indo-Pacific really uh, benefits Hawaii, right, and our way of life because it ensures, you know, the free flow of commerce throughout this region. Sounds like there are some businesses that are still able to benefit from the exercise, and uh, but, uh, I mean, a lost uh, opportunity, I guess, with tourism, but it sounds like, in general, uh, our tourism industry has been pretty hard hit, and this is just a, another example. No, exactly. I think you summed it up uh, very well. You know, it's, you know, when, when you look at the, what, Little studies have been done in the past, and what I mean by little studies, there's never been a comprehensive study of the true economic of RIMPAC, because you would have to look at exactly, you know, you'd have to break it out between RIMPAC, right, and regular tourism, 
Um, and there's also the part that comes into the planning of RIMPAC. You know, RIMPAC, an exercise like that just doesn't happen, right? There's significant planning, you know, one to two years out. Those one to two years out, you know, you have folks who are visiting Hawaii to do that, those planning. Uh, and so to capture all those little data points in terms of how much, you know, additional money does that bring in terms of, you know, accommodations, uh, merchandise, restaurants, and eateries, you know, you'd really have to be able to have a specific a study to, to kind of look at that. But when you look in the past, when they've tried to generate, okay, what is economic impact, it's been primarily through, you know, the Hawaii Department of Business, Economic Development, and Tourism uh, in concert with the Navy Supply System Command, or NAFSUP. So one is primarily looking at direct contracting, right? So Navy Supply Command, NAFSUP, can very well tell you based upon direct contracts in terms of, you know, how much fuel went on the, sh on the ships, uh, how much food, how much maintenance contracts were, were actually um, executed. Um, so that number is, is very easy to, to identify. The tourism and business economic development one is a little bit more difficult. But in this case, when you look at it, because it's an at-sea only, right, the NAFSUP or Pacific uh, Fleet Command probably will have a pretty good idea after pack fleet in terms of this is this is what we know in, ter in terms of direct contracting that went out uh, to some of the local industries here in Hawaii. That was Jason Chung, Vice President of Military Affairs at the Chamber of Commerce Hawaii, talking about the economic impact of the scaled-down war games underway now. That's it for today. Up tomorrow, Noe Tanigawa takes you into the weekend for an Aloha Friday show to talk up culture and the arts. If we love your feedback, got questions or comments about contract tracing or anything else you may have heard on air, call our talkback line, email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Connect with Facebook and Twitter. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.